Artificial intelligence is going to war. From pilotless combat droids fighting far overhead to intelligent military systems being used in the headquarters far from the action. AI is already reshaping conflict. But what happens to the art of war as machines become creative? Welcome to Afterwards. I'm Angad Singh Chowdhury, co-founder of Quilt.ai. Here talking today with Kenneth Payne, a former BBC journalist and a reader in international relations at King's College, London. In his thought-provoking book, I, Warbot, he introduces us to the warbots of tomorrow, faster, more agile, and more deadly than today's human-operated weapons. An international campaign against killer robots hopes to ban AI from conflict, but the genie is out. Autonomous weapons are too useful for states to outlaw. In today's show, we will be exploring how artificial intelligence and war have been shaped by one another and explore what the battlefields of the future might look like when they are dominated by emotionless machines programmed to kill. AI soldiers may be tactically brilliant and proficient, but will they ever be able to replace human generals? Nice to meet you, Ken. Hey, Angat, how are you? I'm very good. It's really nice to meet you. And uh, Ken, how did you get involved in studying AI, machine learning, and war as a subject area? What glued you onto it at the start? Well, the, the war came first. I was writing about strategy and warfare and thinking about it for a long number of years, actually, as, first as a journalist, then as an academic. My approach to understanding warfare was via psychology. So I was what's called a political psychologist, thinking about the ways in which minds shape warfare and conversely in which warfare shapes the mind. So that came first. And then I just happened to be sitting next to somebody in a rowing boat, actually. And the guy in front of me had just got a job with a company I'd never heard of. And he said, oh, I've just joined a company called DeepMind. And this was 2012, 13. And nobody did. I certainly had never heard of DeepMind. I knew about artificial intelligence, but not in any great depth. So he started telling me about it. We struck up a conversation and went off and uh, started to think about the ways in which AI would shape warfare. And that was the start of it. So what's that, seven, eight years ago now? And I've spent most of that time thinking about this subject since then. Yeah, that's so cool. And how did you start after the rowing discussion? Did you immediately think about, oh, hang on a minute, what's happening with ML and war? Or was there a journey into it? I'm sure the military wasn't sitting there giving you all the tips and secrets. No, right. Well, I mean, as you know yourself, that was a very exciting time for artificial intelligence as a sector. Mm -hmm. It was the rise to prominence or the return to prominence of connectionism, deep learning, those sorts of approaches. And so Mm -hmm. I was faintly astonished when I saw things like Andrew Ng's autonomous helicopter doing its somersaults. And you can when you see that, you can instantly see the military application of AI or Google's brain cat recognizing algorithm back in 2012. Mm-hmm. So off I went to the library and, and discovered that actually AI was a discipline with a long history. Connectionism had a long history. Deep learning had a long history in artificial intelligence. And actually more interestingly than that for me, thinking about war, there was a, a deep uh, and ongoing relationship between national security and artificial intelligence research, going right back to the origins of the electronic computer in the 1940s and 50s, even if you wanted to take a more 
expansive view of what artificial intelligence was, going back further into the era of analog computers and things like uh, acoustic torpedoes or the use of early computing in in anti-aircraft artillery. So from the get-go, there was a connection between computing and defence. Pricked my curiosity. And so here we are. And I I assume your interest in uh, psychology and cognition and pattern recognition might have made the journey from pure strategy into AI-enabled war a lot easier because a lot of the problems to be solved are problems of thinking and cognition in many ways and decision-making. And the sophisticated, you know, years and years of sophisticated work that's happened in strategy, a human strategy in war, how does that translate, if it does, into this new world of uh, war bots, as you call them? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, my approach to understanding strategy was through thinking about psychological traits like empathy, theory of mind, mind reading. After all, strategy in large part is trying to figure out what the other side wants, trying to figure out what you want as well, actually, through a bit of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. So psychological aspects like curiosity, imagination, our attempts to predict the future. These are all aspects of strategy, as I understood it from my research on psychology. And now here is the puzzle. In what ways does AI differ from that? In what ways can AI make a contribution to strategy? And that's what got me really interested. Often when people think about AI and warfare, they're thinking about tactics. They're thinking about platforms, planes, ships, tanks, physically moving around the battlefield and being controlled by computers, uninhabited fighter aircraft, these sorts of things. And AI can certainly make a contribution to tactics. A large part of the book is about that. But at a deeper level, the the business of strategy is harder. It's a very human activity. You know, Sun Tzu's famous book about what's called the art of war. It's not called the science of war. And these are harder things to get at with AI. There's always been a lot of hype about what AI is and can do. And will it think like a, a human brain? Is it capable of the sort of things that we do? And in some respects, AI is quite remarkable it can do many things that the human brain can't do as you know yes but it's less than superhuman in other respects isn't it It can't do things that a toddler can do and take for granted instinctively mind reading what's on the mind of somebody else so that's the distinction for me maybe if we take two steps back and just help our audience understand what a war bot is and some of the implications of that definition and both its military applications and its theoretical framing in your mind? Yeah, sure. Well, well, I'll put my hand up here, Angad. Warbot was first a catchy title. And then I pulled back to think what it might actually mean. And, you know, I I obviously picked it because of the connection to Asimov and his famous book, I, Robot. And so it's a play on words there. And anyway, having had the brainwave that it it might be a good title, I then had to step back and think about it in more detail as to what a warbot was. I think the unfortunate thing about calling something a warbot, apart from the SEO implications, are that it draws the attention to the physical side of uninhabited platforms because it sounds like robot. And so you're thinking about 
physical manifestations but actually a lot more of what i'm interested in is the psychological manifestations and that's in the code rather than the physical platform itself and actually that's quite a big change for defense or it will be quite a big change for defense to think about where the value lies going forward in equipment terms probably lies less in the material side of what you're making the exquisite technologies that go in to make up a a tank or an aircraft and lies more in the cognitive aspects of what you're making that's where the real advantage i think will come from i started with warbot and then worked backward from there to think about what it meant in the larger domain not just the physical platforms but also primarily in fact the thinking platforms the cognition of the system yeah you mentioned uh, asimov and his uh, three laws of robotics you have three laws of robotics as well we could talk about each one of them i think the audience would be really interested in how you've uh, architected those i mean the the first thing to say there is there's quite a bit of sci-fi in the book and i wouldn't have said i was a a huge sci-fi fan but it turns out like most people i guess i've seen a lot of sci-fi and so periodically i refer back to movies asimov i'd read when i was very young Uh, my dad had a copy of i robot and so i i remembered the rules of robots and i went and looked at them and of course if you if you know the rules that it's immediately apparent that they're useless for thinking about autonomy and warfare because rule number one is that a robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm which is the opposite of your world yeah sometimes it's unsavory but you want the robot to kill and there's military advantage to allow it to do so without human involvement so then the question becomes well well what do you do with that what sort of rule could you craft that would allow you to still have some control to still use the robot in a way that was to your advantage and that means complying with your own ethics and your own norms as to what should be done in warfare so that was rule one out and rule two says a robot must obey orders given to it by human beings except where they conflict with the first law so if a human being says to one of asimov's robot go and kill that person then the robot says no i can't it it complies with the first law but more broadly it must obey orders given to it by human beings Yes, that's fine as far as it goes, but the broader problem is how a machine understands what you intend and whether when you've said what you want it to do, can you then change your mind? Oh, no, hang on, sorry, I didn't mean that. And that's especially important if it's deciding many thousands of times a second. So you need to find a way of more closely coupling what you want the warbot to do to your goals and objectives, which are fluid maybe even be poorly understood by you yourself. I mean, oftentimes we don't understand what we'd like to achieve in the future until the future has actually arrived. So you need to have a deeper dive, I think, into rule two than we get from from Asimov. And then rule three of Asimov's, the final one, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or the second law. Well, as you may know, one of the ways in which AI is probably going to be used in combat is in the form of so-called kamikaze robots which are disposable deliberately designed to destroy themselves more broadly than that there's this question of how far we should balance protection of people and secondarily equipment in warfare versus achieving the mission 
you know, it's uncomfortable, but sometimes in warfare, commanders do take the decision to sacrifice the people under their command in order to achieve the mission, in order to achieve victory in combat. And so how far should a, a warbot go to protect itself? But how far should a warbot go to protect the humans it's working with as well? It's an interesting and really difficult to solve question. So my take on rule three was that a warbot should protect the humans on my side and itself. Uh, sometimes it should sacrifice itself to do so. But it shouldn't necessarily protect those humans if it comes at the expense of the mission. I mean, I didn't do a good job with these rules for warbots, by the way. You, you can understand what I'm trying to drive at with them. Of course, a warbot should kill in war. A warbot shouldn't necessarily protect itself. And a warbot should try and understand my intentions. You can understand what motivates me to write those rules, but try coding it. It's a whole different order of magnitude to actually translate those rather airy critiques of Asimov into concrete terms. You know, how do you get the machine to understand what you want to do? So if you have a sequence like mission as number one, second as humans on my side, and third as robot in terms of priority, so a robot should not do anything at the expense of the mission is your your third rule. And the warbot should protect people, but still not protect people at the expense of the mission. We get into some chilling territory there. The question I have for you, and I know how machine learning works better than most people. One of the ways in which a lot of these tricky problems have been solved in our industry is through the human in the loop mechanism, in the sense that decisions are made and then a human looks at those decisions and guides machines into where the next set of decisions can go or not. And, you know, I'm speaking about basic natural language processing tasks or image recognition tasks, so even generative adversarial network image generation tasks, so nothing as sophisticated as what you're speaking about. But if we bring back human in the loop, we open up again the entire space of it actually not being autonomous warfare, but being just generals working with better bombs, so to speak. Mm, mm. The fundamental problem with human in the loop, which is where we'd all like to be, a mm -hmm. human somehow exerting meaningful control over a decision involving life and death, perhaps for many people, is that you're up against an enemy that may prefer to or may be more comfortable with not having a human in the loop. And so there's been a retreat from talking of humans in the loop where there, there's a person exerting control over every lethal decision to talking about humans on the loop where the human is overseeing perhaps many autonomous platforms. When it sees them about to do something that they shouldn't, they can get involved and stop that. So they're putting a, a break on the decision-making. And that's really the only way you can think about human control over, let's say, a, a robotic swarm of tens of thousands of drones operating in a contested environment where it's hard to communicate between the human overseer and those drones. You can't make an individual decision for what each one of those platforms is going to do. So you end up with the human on the loop. Well, I don't even think, unfortunately, that the human on the loop is sustainable. In that scenario with tens of thousands of drones, how do you monitor all those individual things? So where I got to was the idea of a human before the loop. It's imperative to set out what you want the machine to do in a way that you can live with, 
afterwards. That's, a, of course, a lot easier said than done. But if you don't do that, the problem is if your adversary is happy with a, a, a swarm of tens of thousands of drones. And, that, and that's the, what uh, strategists call the security dilemma. You know, you're worried that your enemy is going to steal a mm. technological advantage. So the technology drives you to, to make changes that you may not be comfortable with. I love the answer, but my concern is that we might code in some laws of robotics, assuming that we manage to do something like that, laws of warbotics. But what is to prevent the enemy from having the same technology, but not having any ethical constraints, where it's like total destruction of the enemy, it doesn't matter with respect to civilians, all collateral damage is fine. And then you're fundamentally fighting actually two generations of uh, technology, the first generation, which is following rules and laws and ethics, and the second generation that's just out of control and doing whatever it wants to do. What happens in a scenario like that? Because it's essentially uh, someone playing chess versus someone playing Go, but on the same board. And this is why it's such an uncomfortable subject. And I share your apprehension about it. And ultimately, there's no easy answer to that except to say you'd better hope that you have better technology than the unscrupulous adversary. And I think there are grounds for hope that you would have better technology because we are talking here about liberal democratic norms governing the employment of these things. That's what we would be encoding to our war bots. And an authoritarian government may, yes, it's true, mm. and they may take a more cavalier interpretation of that. But authoritarian governments haven't, to this point, proved as adept at developing cutting-edge technologies that liberal democratic societies have. So if there's grounds for optimism, it's that you can push the boundaries of the technology faster and further than can authoritarian governments. Where you started with your question a moment ago, you, say, you said my rules of warbotics suggested that the mission came first and that was chilling. Everything could fall in line to the mission. Yeah. I think that's true. And of course, you'll know from the AI literature, the classic thought experiment of Nick Bostrom, where he has this AI that's charged with simply counting out 100 paperclips. And because you can never be certain that you've counted correctly, it goes back and counts again and again and again. And in his thought experiment, the AI, when it's told to stop counting those paperclips now, says no. A bit like Hal in 2001 says, you know, no, and pushes back against the humans. And that leads to disaster. I mean, that's... And it's the law of unintended consequences. I give you the mission, but I didn't say go out and nuke half the known world in order to achieve it. That's profoundly unsettling, and, and that's my concern about autonomous weapons. And that's how law two and three interact with each other. So law two is trying to understand intentions and therefore deal with the problem of unintended consequences. And law three is the one that says, protect humans on my side, deal with the mission as well, but deal with the mission in a way that my intentions have been understood. And that's how you've kind of manage to balance all three. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, I'm squaring a circle that is far easier to do in English prose than it is to do in whatever language you're coding yes. uh, for the warbot. And Stuart Russell, um, who's very concerned about lethal autonomous weapons, computer scientist, his solution to this problem of unintended consequences is that rather than give the machine, whatever the machine is, a reward function, 
count 100 paperclips or win this war, you give the machine the reward function, are you happy? So the machine has to keep coming back to you and saying, I've just done this, is, is that enough? Are you happy with that? And it's constantly checking in. Again... With the human. That, with Which, the human. Yeah. But again, that's problematic, isn't it? In a contested environment where the enemy is trying to stop communication, mm. in an environment where there may be many thousands mm. of systems or systems operating at blistering speed, if it's going to have to check back with you the whole time, that's just the human in the loop solution. Mm-hmm. That's just saying, well, actually, the human's got control. And we go back to your question, what happens if the unscrupulous enemy doesn't care about such things? The upshot is it's it's really hard to solve this problem. I'm assuming that if we take the technology out of the picture, right, and forget about machine learning and AI and the automation of all of this, I'm assuming that war scenarios in general are unpredictable and chaotic and messy. They're not as neat as the movies show us. I'm assuming, right? Like, I've never been to war. I don't know if you have, but you certainly have studied it a lot. And like every human activity, it's a mess. And decision-making becomes chaotic very fast. And systems, you know, neat systems of peacetime and communication flows of peacetime are put under stress in a way that's never been seen before. In this world, this utopian idea of machines just battling it out, (laughs) you know, in this a very clean video game-like environment, you know that that's not feasible and that the humans are going to be challenged much more. There's going to be a lot more emotional stuff and psychological elements in that war-bought scenario because that's what happens at war, regardless of what machine you use. It happened with knives. It happened with stones. It happened with nukes. It happened with artillery. It happened in guerrilla warfare. Again, I'm a civilian speaking about war, so I don't know, but I'm just making some educated guesses here. The heart of war is psychological stress and tension and hard decisions, and autonomous robots won't make that go away. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You can get caught up in the technology here. There's a lot of hype and hyperbole, a lot of snake oil being sold but you're right uh i think war is and will remain human for a very long time to come it's going to be something that's done by humans to humans and ai won't change that in my lifetime i suspect and 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 for a long period of time after that actually the greatest thinker about war to my mind is a prussian karl von clausewitz he made the the same point that you just made he said that strategy is about decision making Amid tremendous uncertainty, in times of great emotion, incomplete information, misinformation abounding. He called it friction, the fog of war. You've heard of that expression, perhaps. And he said that the greatest quality of a commander was what he called genius. And what he meant by that was the ability to not be paralyzed by those circumstances, but somehow have a feeling, almost an instinctive, unconscious feeling for what the the right solution was in any particular moment. He did think that you could train that unconscious decision-making by experience, by reading of military history and so on. But nonetheless, that's a particularly human quality that he thought uh, was pervasive in war and he described as part of the nature of war, the unchanging nature of war, no matter how the character of war changes from era to era, the technologies are one important aspect of that. He said that there was that fundamental human essence and i think you know Clausewitz was on it 
that's absolutely right. But what I would add to that is to say that AI, if it can lay a claim to being a revolutionary change in warfare, is revolutionary in the sense that it adds something to that human decision-making. It's the first time in the whole of history where at least part of the cognitive element of warfare is going to be made by decision-makers that aren't human and that think in a very different way to us. And that's the case right now. It's the case right from the tactical level where machine learning systems acquire and analyze intelligence information and present that to human decision makers, perhaps the pilot in an F-35 or perhaps even the general back at headquarters. So yes, it's still a Clausewitzian experience warfare and will remain so. Mm. But now there's something mm. new in the mix. It's informing, the, it's bounding the rationality of the human actor. So as part of a human machine team, if you like, it's constructing the reality that they make their decisions on. And that, I think, is quite interesting. It's like a new map. There was a time without maps, and war was taking place without maps, and then there was a new map. And it's almost like a new representation of reality, you know, whether it is oil tanker movements or oil tanker movements correlated with stock market movements, etc. all the kind of compute that machines can do, which gives people far more sophisticated, uh, you know, cartographies almost of an enemy's consciousness. So in many ways, it's an epistemology rather than a consciousness in, in war games. Yes, absolutely. Even a simple algorithm can construct your reality for you. And if you think about algorithms in the social media domain where they serve you another story, a bit like the one you said you liked, and gradually your your whole milieu is constructed by... That's a simple algorithm that's just looking at what you clicked and serving you more stuff. And Stuart Russell, again, in his recent Wreath lectures, he had a great phrase. He said, the algorithm optimises you. This is not cutting-edge stuff of the sort that you might see in movies. This is a simple optimizing algorithm that creates your worldview and your understanding. And we see that playing out a lot in politics over the last five, six years or so. If you think about that applied to the world of strategy, if you're acquiring information that is, well, first acquired autonomously and second filtered and analyzed autonomously, then your worldview is being shaped by computers even if your final decision is ultimately made by human intelligence trying to guess what the enemy does. And you're starting to see some interesting thinking on this. I mentioned one in the book, a war game by Rand, an American think tank with a long heritage in the Cold War, thinking about these sorts of questions. Rand recently had a war game that didn't actually, so far as I know, involve any real computers. It was a pen and paper tabletop exercise. But the scenarios were interesting. It posited a confrontation between the US and its allies in China. So that doesn't sound too far-fetched. And each side in this slightly futuristic scenario had human machine teams. So they were using AI in ways to shape their understanding of the environment and also to respond to it. The problem was that you couldn't be certain from where you sat what the exact capabilities of the enemy were and how much they had outsourced to the machines, how much of this was going to be automatic. And the result in this one war game was an escalatory spiral. Actually, in war games, it's really hard to get people to escalate. You might, in a sort of Machiavellian sense, think, right, well, can we see, can we make a nuclear war kick off? But experience suggests that it's quite hard to get people to do that in war games. But in this war game, there was a rapid escalatory spiral. 
And that's partly because of this fear of what the enemy would do. Now, it's only one war game, and we're at the start of thinking about these things. And it didn't actually involve, as I say, any real superintelligent computing. Mm. But a lot more of that sort of work, I think, needs to be done. Is that what you're thinking about researching next? Yes, it is. So if you've written a book about, I mean, this book landed pretty well. Its timing was good, and I enjoyed writing it. I think it's the fastest book I've written yet. And then there's the temptation to repeat the trick. So what could you write next? Mm. And I want to do something a little bit different. In fact, I've started on something a little bit different, but it does flow from precisely that point we've just been talking about. So the next book is thinking in a more focused way about empathy and strategic decision making. And of course, there's scope in there to talk about artificial intelligence because, you know, AI doesn't empathize in the same way that we do slash empathize at all. But it's, to my mind, the key puzzle in strategy and i'm struck by everybody will know the the cuban missile crisis another great movie 13 days if you don't know about it president kennedy was really interesting in his time in office he kept saying to his advisors we have to empathize with khrushchev put yourselves in his shoes what's he thinking how's he feeling mm-hmm. and he engaged with khrushchev a lot they had this secret correspondence where they tried to feel each other out about these questions with mixed success so kennedy understood that strategy boiled down to empathy and i find that quite interesting and worth exploring so that's where i'm going next to this one and actually in in warbot the last line of the whole book sorry to give away a spoiler is from president kennedy and he says man is the greatest computer of all and i say well let's hope that continues to be the case this is not to say that i won't play a part in strategy but it's interesting to think about the ways in which that interacts with empathy Thank you to Kenneth Payne for taking part in this episode. You can buy iWarbot now from the Hearst Publishers website. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough. For more, follow Hearst at Hearst Publishers and Quilt.ai at QuiltAI underscore on Twitter. And to get news on the latest Hearst books, subscribe to the email updates at HearstPublishers.com. I'm Angad Singh Chowdhury. Thank you for listening. And follow me on Twitter at Angad C.